0: Welcome to the fourth episode of Sample Size One, a podcast about unrepeatable experiments in music and art. I'm Dave Hillowitz. In upstate New York, about an hour and a half northwest of Albany, sits the small town of Dolgeville, population 2,000. The scenery is beautiful, nestled in a valley surrounded by green hills, forests of elm trees, and a rushing river that, further downstream, turns into a series of picturesque waterfalls. The town itself is somewhat less remarkable. So anyone passing through, it looks like a typical northeastern mill town. A few stores, a high school, a vacant former mill. In fact, there's pretty much nothing about this place that would lead you to think that it had been the testing ground for some of the major progressive innovations we all take for granted today. Things like kindergartens, hydroelectric power, even social security. In this episode, we're going to explore a major social experiment, a utopian feat of town planning with world-changing ambitions, and one that's now barely a footnote in US history. At the center of the story is Alfred Dolge, the man who gave the town its name. There are frustratingly few sources on Dolge. I first stumbled on his name, actually, while I was researching the previous episode on zithers and related instruments. He happened to be the patent holder for the auto harp in the 1890s, and his name came up again and again in the context of musical instrument making. Though that's probably actually the least interesting thing about him. Apart from an autobiography he wrote in the third person, largely focused on speeches he gave. The only detailed account of his life comes from a local historian named Eleanor Franz, who wrote a biography of Dolge in 1980. Sadly, she passed away in 2001. There are still a handful of local experts who take an interest in his legacy, so I've enlisted their help to tell this story. Let's start at the beginning. Alfred Dolge was born in 1848, a pretty climactic year throughout Europe in what is now the German city of Chemnitz.
1: So his father was quite a radical, and he was a uh, revolutionist in 1848. This was a wave of uh, revolts. Anyhow, Christian Dawes was in prison when Alfred was a young boy.
0: That was the voice of Michael Cooney, a writer from upstate New York who focuses on forgotten bits of local history. He's one of the people who's gonna be helping us tell this story. Okay, so, Dolge's dad was actually sentenced to death for his role in the revolutions of 48 when Alfred was only six months old although that sentence was commuted 10 years later. Aside from being a political activist, his dad had been a piano maker, and Alfred did an apprenticeship in that trade at the age of 13. His education wasn't just musical.
1: His early teacher was the founder of the German Socialist Party, Wilhelm Leibknecht.
0: Leibknecht was a friend of his father's and tutored the boy several times a week. Between his father and his tutor, Alfred was reared on the radical and progressive ideas of that political moment. Interestingly, his mother was of a more entrepreneurial turn. She ran a successful dry goods store that sustained the family during his father's imprisonment. Here's Sue Perkins of the Herkimer Historical Society.
2: He came over to New York City in 1868, came through Castle Garden. They say that he only had about a quarter in his pocket and he started working in a piano factory there, but he didn't like it. He eventually started his own business right there in New York City.
1: You know, as the Victorian period got going, every middle-class family wanted a piano. His genius was in developing piano components because previously the felt, the special wires, were all imported from Europe.
2: By starting his factory, he produced felt for the piano hammer,
0: Almost overnight, Dolge became the largest supplier of piano felt in the country, easily outpacing his foreign competitors. He knew immediately that he needed to find a larger home for his manufacturing operations.
1: He was in New York and he apparently did some traveling until he found the hamlet of Brockett's Bridge and then he came there and built his town.
2: When he first got there, it was called Brockett's Bridge. There were only about 300 houses there. There was a tannery there. It was just a small community.
1: Evidently, the location was quite suited for felt manufacturing.
0: It was around this time that Dodge became the exclusive felt supplier for America's largest piano manufacturer, Steinway & Sons. To keep up with demand, Dodge needed more workers. So he hired agents to intercept German immigrants as they got off the boats in New York and convince them to move to Brockett's Bridge instead of staying in the city. The plan worked. Between 1874 and 1895, over 2,000 Germans moved to a town that previously had just a few hundred residents. Meanwhile, Dolge built factory buildings, a timber mill, and workers' housing.
2: He eventually laid out the streets, the water system. He had bought property and he donated property to the local churches in the community so they could all build their own church on the land. He sold it to them
0: for a dollar. As his felt enterprises prospered, Dolge expanded into other lines of business. If you've ever heard of Daniel Green Felt Slippers, that's one of the many companies he started during this period. Dolge was an early adopter. He was also always looking for ways to streamline his manufacturing operations. In 1879, he heard that Thomas Edison had invented a steam-powered electric generator, so he ordered a similar one to be hooked up to the water wheel in his felt factory, making his one of the first factories in America to have electric lighting. In fact, depending on who you ask, this was either the first or the second hydroelectric power plant in the entire country. Next, with all his businesses in high gear, it was time for Dulge to implement the most visionary part of his utopian plan, workers' benefits. The second half of the 19th century was marked by bitter struggles between workers and industrialists who in some cases owned the company towns where they lived. Unions had no legal standing and workers' attempts to organize were often met with violent suppression. It was common for management to hire private security firms to break up strikes, sometimes with deadly results. Workers had plenty to complain about, too. Workdays were typically 10 to 12 hours without breaks, and the pay was subsistence level, just enough to be able to afford rent at the factory-run workers' housing. In factory towns, workers were sometimes even paid in scrip instead of U.S. dollars, which basically ensured that they would never have the means to leave their jobs and go elsewhere. So, Dodge was determined to do things differently. In his town, workers would be well paid, housing would be decent and affordable, and his employees' children would be guaranteed good education at local public schools. And there would be long-term benefits to staying employed at one of his factories. In 1876, just two years after arriving in Brockett's Bridge, Dolge introduced his most revolutionary idea. A pension plan for his workers. The first of its kind in America. It was actually a pretty simple system. 1% 1% of each worker's wages would be set aside from his or her paycheck. This would go into a retirement fund. At the age of 60, employees were allowed to retire, and the amount that they would get would be proportional to the time they had spent at the company. If an employee had worked for the company for 25 years, they would continue to get 100% of their salary for the rest of their life. If they would worked for 10 years, they would get 50%. If they were disabled as a result of their employment, they would automatically get 50%, regardless of how long they'd been working for the company. A year later, Dodge introduced life insurance policies for all of his workers. A year after that, he announced a rent-to-own policy for workers' housing. Each employee would be charged a fair market rate for the rental of their house, and after a set number of years, they would own their house outright. These innovations were extremely well received. Statues of Alfred Dodge were erected, and in 1881, the town, which had up until this point been called Brockett's Bridge, officially petitioned to have its name changed to Dolgeville. Though he was trained as a piano maker, Alfred Dolge's real genius was as a salesman, and by all accounts, he was quite showy. Felt might not seem like such a glamorous commodity, but the product Dolge was most eager to sell was the town of Dolgeville itself. He wanted it to serve as a model for how every factory town should be run. Dolge embarked on an international speaking tour to evangelize about Dolgeville. He published two books about the town and hired journalists to write about all the different things he was doing. The articles, which appeared in local papers throughout the US, are strikingly similar to one another, almost as though they were all written by the same person. He also took out full-page ads featuring beautiful engravings of the factory buildings he'd built. Some of the programs Dodge started might sound like the kind of philanthropy that other industrialists like Andrew Carnegie and John Rockefeller were famous for, all the schools, museums, and libraries they funded. But Dodge saw the benefits he was offering workers in a very different light. He didn't see the profits he made as his own to give back. Instead, he argued that it was the workers who produced that surplus and that the profits of their work belonged to them. A core socialist idea. Here's Michael Cooney again.
1: He probably developed his socialist ideas before he was successful. There's no doubt that they were the deepest beliefs that he held. There's no doubt of that.
0: And this is part of what makes him such a fascinating character. Because how can pro-worker ideas of the kind Dodge was raised with coexist happily with the kind of capitalist business he was trying to run? Well, not without some notable contradictions.
1: Yeah, I think his motivations were, were pretty lofty, but at the same time, he assured a pretty good life for himself and his, his family. You know, they had their mansion, which is typical of these factory towns that the boss has a beautiful mansion.
0: It's also worth mentioning that, as pro-worker as Dulge's ideas were, he stopped short of actually supporting organized labor.
1: He did not believe in unions. It was a very paternalistic system.
0: He gave a number of speeches designed to convince the workers that having a union was not in their best interest and that things that unions were arguing for, like eight-hour workdays, for example, were completely impracticable at present.
1: He was the boss there, and he provided great benefits for the workers. Uh, You could see, you know, sick leave, uh, things that were really unheard of at the time.
0: For what it's worth, he did eventually agree to a nine-hour workday, which was better than most. And by all accounts, he paid his workers above average wages. Dolge's projects didn't just extend to his employees, but to their families as well. He was a big promoter of public education. In Germany, in the 19th century, there was a huge movement towards education reform. And Dolge sought to import a lot of these German ideas into the U.S., most notably...
2: Kindergarten. Yes, he started a kindergarten down on Doljev and built the Dollsville Academy.
1: It was a German idea, kindergartens. Some people claim that he introduced kindergartens to the United States...
0: It's impossible to verify whether his was really the first in the U.S., but we do know that Dodgeville had the first public kindergarten in New York State. Dodge was very explicit about his motivations. He saw schools as the great equalizer, a mechanism by which the children of working-class families would have a shot at becoming middle class. At the time, there was a massive influx of immigrants from different parts of Europe. Dodge also saw education as a way of speeding up assimilation for children of immigrants. As he put it in his dedication speech for the new school,
3: only with the aid of such public schools can we ever develop out of the different, often discordant elements which have come together in the new world, a homogeneous people with a sense of nationality.
0: Dodge's school was initially met with quite a bit of resistance. The town's older residents didn't want kindergarten. They didn't want art or gym programs either. In part, they were simply resistant to change. But there was also something else. They suspected Dodge was trying to Germanicize the town. Michael Cooney again.
1: He imported a lot of workers. He also saw to the German was taught in the schools. Uh, He was a big believer in education anyhow. So, I mean, there's a certain kind of German tone to the whole enterprise. If you think of it, he's producing a a system, uh, you know, that's very beneficial to workers, but they did largely share the same ethnicity.
0: This is sort of a peculiarity of Dolger's vision. He spoke so often of the need for assimilation of immigrant groups, but the cultural life of the town that he fostered was markedly German. German institutions, German language taught in schools, German flags alongside American flags at parades. Anyway, despite this pushback from some residents, Dodge forged ahead with his plans. When funding for the new school building couldn't be secured from the state, he set about raising it privately. He solicited donations from every landowning resident in town. If folks failed to pay up, he threatened them with public shaming. This is from an actual nag note he sent one of the town's residents.
3: The committee thinks that each property owner should at least pay $3. I beg to state that the little book will be published in time, and the names of those with the amount subscribed will be printed in that book, also of
0: those who decline to take part. Dodge stuck to his threat, publishing a slim volume in 1888. Somewhat hilariously, his own name appears on the list of people who had thus far contributed less than their share. Especially ironic, considering he ended up paying for more than half of the school out of pocket. When the superintendent of the New York State schools came to visit, he remarked,
1: It is doubtful there is another village in the state of New York which has so much money invested
3: in school property as has Dolgeville.
0: Dolge wasn't just looking to materially improve the quality of life. He sought to educate the townspeople in his own personal philosophy. At regular intervals, he would give these long-winded and frankly pretty condescending speeches about how life ought to be lived. Here he is talking about temperance.
3: Temperance is but another word for the natural consequences of self-respect. That self-respect which you must plant into the minds of your children, which will remind them in the hour of temptation that they are man. That they.
0: Always... He preached a secular gospel of self-discipline. Something which could be honed through the practice of gymnastics. Yep gymnastics. At the time, there was this movement in Germany called the Turnverein.
1: Two words, turn and then V-E-R-E-I-N.
0: This was in part a network of gymnastics clubs for young men, but it was also a political movement. In Germany, many members of the Turnverein had actually been exiled for their support of the 1848 revolution. Alfred Dolge started the Dolgeville chapter, and every year they would have these lavish festivals called turnfests.
1: These turnfests Apparently it would attract people from the German-American community, uh, you know, in the Northeast at least, and they would gather at Dallsville for these annual events. A lot of uh, beer, no doubt, and Oompa bands and so on.
0: Typically, Alfred would kick off each turnfest with one of his trademark speeches. Come to the clubhouse
3: half an hour after our supper, young man, and jump over the bars and lines or swing on the rings, and I guarantee you that you will sleep the sleep of the innocent and that no exciting dreams or nightmares will deprive you of your needed rest.
0: Of course, these projects weren't free. After building two public schools, Dolch spent another $47,000 constructing a building for the Turnverein. The Gymnastics Society had founded.
2: Okay, the Turnhall.
1: Turnhall. It's a German word. T-U-R-N-H-A-L-L-E.
2: It was an elaborate social club. It had a library, a reading room, space for bowling and billiards. The gymnasium and auditorium were the finest stage in the Mohawk Valley.
1: Operas and so forth.
2: He even got famous New York City... Music artists to come to Dollsville and perform. We even got the Philharmonic Club to come to Dollsville and give a concert. Victor Herbert's band.
0: Not the Victor Herbert. Okay. I'd never heard of him either, but apparently he's quite a big deal in the 1880s. Here's an early recording of his band. Anyway, Dolge spent another chunk of money setting up his newspaper, the Dolgeville Herald. He brought in several respected newspaper men to run the operation, and as often happens when fancy people are brought in, they wanted to hire more people. Pretty soon, this small-town newspaper employed a staff of 20. And then there was the railroad, Dolge's single biggest expenditure. Throughout his rise, He'd kept an office in New York City, and twice a week he would travel to and from the city by train, which was an eight-hour trip. Part of the reason the trip was so long is that Dodgeville wasn't actually on any railroad lines. In order to even get to the train, he had to take a stagecoach to the nearby town of Little Falls. Apparently, after 20 years of doing this twice a week, he'd had enough. Dodge decided to solve his problem by building a railroad between the two towns.
1: The railroad was very difficult to build.
2: To get to Daljo from Little Falls, they had to blast through rocks.
1: You know, that area is uh, very hilly, so. They
2: had to build a trussle over Ransom Creek. That thing was really high. I don't know how they ever built it. (laughs) We used to walk out on it when we were kids, try to.
0: Again and again, he raised money from local investors, only to have them bail as the project's costs grew and grew. Eventually, as with the school, He ended up footing a large chunk of the bill himself. No one knows exactly how much he spent on it, but estimates are in the hundreds of thousands. Since this is the 1880s, we're probably talking between 5 and 10 million in today's money. Another huge expenditure was Alfred Dolge's famous mansion. In 1895, when the country was in the midst of a recession, he had the company build him a 44-room estate.
2: Alfred hired the best when he built the mansion. He had Italian plasters, worked there, and Swiss carvers, and had two ballrooms, and he had many fireplaces in it. The front entryway was absolutely gorgeous woodwork. Um, had a portica chair out front, so the carriages could pull right up to the house.
0: The mansion became the center of social life for the Dolges. They entertained there almost every weekend, and it was central to the yearly turn fest that the town was still hosting. At parties, the Dolges were apparently worried about people scraping their parquet floors, so they required guests to wear, you guessed it, felt slippers produced in Alfred's own factory. Two frequent visitors were a guy named Schuyler Ingham and a local judge named George Hardin. Both were investors in Dolges' enterprises. The judge actually officiated at the wedding of Dolges' son, Rudolph. And it was in part through the help of these two men that Dolge was able to secure loans for his projects and keep his business afloat during the recession of 1893. Little did Dolge know, these two men would also be the instruments of his destruction. Most utopias don't end on a single day. Most get co-opted, or they gradually transform into something more ordinary. But this one did. That day was April 10th, 1898. So what happened? Well. Even to this day, nobody really knows. To the outside world, it looked as if Alfred Dolch had simply run out of money. But the truth may be more complicated. Here's Michael Cooney again.
1: And if I were writing a historical novel, I would make it out to be that he was brought down by jealous capitalists, you know, who weren't providing the same benefits. Uh, he was making them look bad. Uh, but that's just speculation. I mean, it's also possible that he, being a great egotist, no doubt, uh, it may have been overextended.
0: I asked Sue Perkins what she thought had happened.
2: Bad business deals by uh, so called uh, friends, George Harden and Skylar Ingham, uh, gave him bad business deals. And so when he had to sell everything, Skylar Ingham brought a lot of the things. And it had to have been heartbreaking to have build it all up and then lose
0: it all. And here's Bob Maxwell of the Dolgeville Historical Society.
1: Well, he overextended himself to build a railroad from Little Falls to Dottlesville. And he used more money than he probably should have. And then some of his financial advisors um, that he turned to to get some money they were holding supposedly said they didn't have any of his money. And and they all retired millionaires. So evidently they still did have his money.
0: (laughs) Michael Cooney again.
1: Financially, he may have been overstretched, or he may have been too indulgent of his son. That seems to have been the key instrument that brought him down. His debtors got hold of the son's power of attorney.
2: And it's also a sad story that he lost everything through bad business deals and had to sell his beautiful 44-room mansion and all the contents and all of his businesses.
1: He never came back to Delosville once he left, because I think he felt shamed about being bankrupt and stuff.
2: He could never go back to Dalsville because uh, he was so broken-hearted. And to think that he thought so much of the community that when he died, he's buried in the highest spot in the Dalzro Cemetery overlooking his beloved
0: community. The role played by Alfred's son, Rudolph, is particularly intriguing. According to Alfred's account, his two close friends, Skylar Ingham and Judge Harden, had betrayed him. They had secretly paid his son Rudolph a visit two years earlier, begging him to give them power of attorney to Dolge's business. The young man was told that his father was already bankrupt, that Alfred was a sick man and that he, Rudolph, should look after his own interests. Once they had the power of attorney, Ingham and Hardin waited for a moment of financial weakness to call in their debts. They then used the power of attorney to declare bankruptcy on behalf of Dolge's son, Rudolph, even though the company still had money. This left Hardin and Ingham complete control over Dolge's enterprises. For their part, Skylar and Ingham maintained their innocence. They claimed that Dolge had simply been very spendthrift at a time when he should have been tightening his belt. So who's telling the truth? I've done some digging, and it is factually true that they used Alfred's son's power of attorney to declare bankruptcy. That was actually printed in the newspapers at the time. And it may also be telling that Alfred's son, Rudolph, moved to Argentina shortly after signing that paperwork, but before Ingham and Hardin made their move. Hmm. I wonder if he ever spoke to his dad again. Both Ingham and Hardin did very, very well out of this bankruptcy. Which is odd. If they had just been investors, they should have lost their shirts too. So that does seem kind of suspect. Still, Alfred Dolge really did like to take on projects, and he probably was overextended. Which isn't to say that Judge Hardin didn't have it in for him. Here's a statement he made in the local paper in 1899.
3: Dolge is a visionary. He's an anarchist, an atheist, a communist, and an agnostic. His father wore the chain and ball for political offenses in Germany, and his own opinions are rabid.
0: So what happened to Dolgeville? Well, Schuyler Ingham was put in charge of Dolge's factories. Just about every social program Alfred had started was immediately dismantled. The 9-hour workday was extended back to 10 hours. The workmen's comp and retirement pensions were immediately terminated, leaving many longtime employees without the pensions they'd earned. The auto-heart business was shuttered too, and thousands of completed instruments which were ready for shipment were incinerated. Schuyler Ingham used the newspaper Alfred Dolch had built to mount a propaganda war against his former business partner. But even so, Alfred began to be looked on as sort of a local hero. As for the man himself, Well, one would think that a failure so massive and so public would be enough to force anyone into retirement. But that's not what happened. After a year or two, Alfred and his wife moved to LA and, get this, started a brand new Dolgeville there. The new Dolgeville was almost a shot-for-shot remake of the original, but with a slight Western flair. It also produced felt, and it comprised almost all the social programs of its predecessor. But it wasn't nearly as successful. You remember how I said that in 1882, the residents of New York Dolgeville, formerly Brockett's Bridge, were so happy with Alfred Dodge that they petitioned to have their town's name changed to Dolgeville. Well, in 1910, the residents of California Dolgeville did the opposite. They petitioned to lose the name Dolgeville and instead become part of the nearby neighborhood of Alhambra, California. I tried to look up the area where the factory stood on Google Maps, but the whole thing has been turned into a Costco. After the second Dolgeville unincorporated itself, Alfred Dolge finally retired. He wrote a book on the history of American piano makers. It was actually a really important book. It's still in print today. He died in Milan in 1921, while on a trip around the world. Looking back on the largely forgotten history of Dolgeville, we're left with the inevitable question. Was Dolge's experiment a success? At first glance, it seems pretty clear that it wasn't. Dolge ended up going bankrupt and being run out of town by his creditors. But in fact, There's no evidence that his social programs really had anything to do with his downfall. They were actually all structured to pay for themselves. It seems likely that what actually bankrupted him was just that railroad he built. These days, Dodgeville, New York is a sleepy place. It still has some manufacturing, mostly wooden baseball bats, although that's been on a slow decline since the late 1970s. The town made headlines in 2014 when Dolge's historic mansion burned to the ground under circumstances that some residents found suspicious. The plot of land where the estate once stood is now up for sale. Listing price, $85,000. The destruction of this local landmark was a blow to the town. But so many of Dolge's other structures from factories to schools to the Alfred Dolge Fire Company have survived the intervening century. And feelings about Alfred Dolge, at least from the people I spoke to are still extremely positive. In fact, Every year, Dolgeville holds a festival, and the townspeople act out scenes from their founder's life. All of which is nice, but what really is his legacy? Well, there is that whole workers' pension thing. They call him the father of Social Security.
1: The Social Security website, in fact, gives him some credit as a forerunner of Social Security.
0: So that's kind of a big deal, isn't it? And yet, if Alfred Dolge's ideas were really so groundbreaking, why have most people never heard of this guy? Now, obviously, it's always hard to say exactly why history chooses to remember certain people, and not others. Still, it didn't help his reputation that, in the years that followed the bankruptcy, dozens of articles were printed across the country, claiming that it was Dolge's social programs that had ruined him. Many papers went so far as to say that Dolge had showed the world the impossibility of providing benefits to workers. Here's what the Washington Post wrote just two years later.
3: Only a few years
1: ago, Alfred Dolge of Dulgeville, New York, was annually shouting the praise of profit-sharing as illustrated in his business. But there came a cold, sad day when losses appear, and that song was hushed. Ruin usurped the place of prosperity. But that catastrophe would have been averted if, instead of paying his workmen more than their wages, he had laid aside the money as a reserve fund for a hard year.
0: Outside of Dodgeville, this image of Dolge, that of a wide-eyed dreamer with completely unrealistic ideas, seems to be the one that stuck. Still, I like to think that Dodge had the last laugh. A lot of his ideas have really stood the test of time. Similar pension programs were eventually adopted by other companies, and then in the late 1930s, America got nationalized pensions in the form of social security. In fact, almost all the ideas that Dolge tried to institute, social security, workers' comp, shorter working days, kindergarten, have become so commonplace that we don't even think about where they came from. On that note, I will uh, see you all down at the Turn Hall! I want to thank my wife Emily, who is extremely helpful in putting together this episode. I also want to thank my guests Michael Cooney, Sue Perkins, and Bob Maxwell, as well as the late Eleanor Franz of the Dolgeville Historical Society. The book that Eleanor wrote in 1980 remains the most complete source of information about Dolge. To give you a sense of just how thorough this book is, the footnotes even feature recipes for food that was prepared during the Dolgeville Turnfest of the 1890s. Anyone care for a slice of Mrs. Gustav Fregang's delicious Apfelkuchen? The voice of Alfred Dolge was played by Falk Werner, Judge Hardin was Jonathan Luhmann, and all other voices were by Dane Scott. If you've been enjoying these episodes, it would be great if you could tell a friend or two about the show. Thanks for listening!